You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, Rock Art, Episode 84, interviewing Anne Norman. She's a rock art enthusiast and a world traveler and a student of rock art that has some tremendously interesting stories and direct experience in South Africa and the Middle East. You will love this episode. Welcome to episode 84 of your Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're really blessed and honored to have a uh, tremendous rock art enthusiast her name is Anne Norman, and she's going to uh, spend the hour with us and talk about some of her adventures and the direction her life is taking her, following her passion for rock art. Anne, are you with us? I am. Hello. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you on a podcast. And the million dollar question is always this first first segment, and you you probably have heard this a few times. What brought you to an interest in rock art? And tell us a bit about your background and how you uh, came to be interested in uh, indigenous cultures, their religion, perhaps their uh, subject of shamanism and other such related matters. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And I would love to talk about that. So I grew up in northern Utah and a lot, you know, we went to Yellowstone and Jackson on weekends all the time, and there are Native Americans all over. And I always wanted to like touch them, but you know, the ancient ones are gone. And I just, I always had these daydreams of Indians, and I go play in the river bottoms behind my house. And I grew up in a literal village, and I've never told you this in Paradise, Utah, and it really is paradise. And when I was a little kid, my grandfather taught us how, taught me how to ride a horse Indian style. And they don't use bridles. They don't use, you know, it's hand signals, no saddle. And he basically said, when you can ride like this, you know, you're good to go on anything. So I learned all these hands. I had no idea that was really cool. I just thought it was normal. And fast forward to when I was in high school 
I went on this five-day backpacking trip down in southern Utah. And the very first time I saw petroglyphs, they were petroglyphs. We were hiking through the narrows, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And you're hiking to water sources and you think you're going to die. And, you know, you're a teenager. (laughs) And I remember coming. We came to a spring and we were all so thirsty. And we got to this spring and it was a high school trip. So there were teachers and the and we spent the night at this spring. And I looked up after I quenched my thirst and saw for the first time in my life real petroglyphs. And I stopped and I almost, I almost started to cry. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I went up and I'm ashamed to say I touched them, but I put my hand, there was a handprint and then there was, a, I can't remember exactly what the image was, but I remember putting my own hand in that handprint and becoming like almost melted into that rock. Like someone was here a long, 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 long time ago. And they feel me like it just was this incredible experience. And then my teacher, his name was Mr. Weiberg, coolest guy you'll ever meet, had a flute, a Native American flute. And I don't know what tribe or what kind, but he could play it incredibly well. And we sat in this canyon that had these petroglyphs on them. And there were just a few, there was a source of water. So clearly It's, you know, we're in the right space now that I know a little more about this. And there was a rock shelter not very far away because we slept in that rock shelter. And he played that flute as the evening came on. And then he woke us up to that flute. So the day, you know, the dawn comes and you hear this music. And I just thought, okay, okay, I, there is some otherworldly thing happening here. Wow. And it it left such an impression on me. Never saw petroglyphs again until I I grew up and I'm an adult and I've worked in oil and gas. Well, before I get to that, I I have spent the last, like since 2004 in various parts of Africa. Sometimes I've lived there for years. Sometimes I just go back and forth, but I've been incredibly engaged in Africa and the Middle East for well over 20 years. And I spent a year living in South Africa and South Africa, as you know, it's the sand tribe. It's the rock art, just so much rock art and just beautiful, amazing stuff. And there's continuity of history there because these tribes have been there for who knows how long. No, we really have no idea. And I discovered the Witzwatersand and I discovered the Rari and the museum there and spent a lot of time there and got to know some of the archaeologists there, but in particular, Ben Smith. And he would send me and I would go up to Mapumalanga and I he sent me on this adventure with and I am ashamed to admit and I need to ask Ben who this man's name was, but he was like the fourth grade grandson of the chief and and I'm probably slaughtering that because he's not a chief, but the guy that painted the big, really famous train panel with the monster head and the guys, there's little people in cages and the cages are the belly of this big, long monster. And it's in a shelter and there's totems everywhere. And it's, it's a panel that's been there for longer than any of them know their oral history, but it's, it's a very significant place. 
And, you know, we had to hike for like four or five hours to get there. Ben sent me up there. Dr. Smith sent me up there and he actually sent some equipment with me because this gentleman who is now like the chief, you know, he was the the elder and he was quite young. He was probably like in his mid twenties. And we went on this hike out to see this panel. And I just remember the second time ever in my life, this time it's paintings. And I stood there and I touched them again. And he taught me what these things mean. Wow. And there were hundreds. I don't even know how many pieces of art are on that in that rock shelter. But he taught me so many things. And along the way, we had like this four hour hike through their tribal lands. And we met, you know, the herders. And I mean, I was in the heart of sand territory with the guy Mm. that knows all about it. And could tell me the color. <laughs> I just thought, okay, I I could die in this like rock shelter and be happy right now because oh my right. goodness. Could you perhaps deconstruct or share some sound bites of what you learned about that panel? Yes. It dates to sometime around the Boer War when white people came into their territory. So I don't actually sure. know when that is. But they didn't understand who these people were. And they looked Mm -hmm. funny, had a very different skin color than what the, you know, the sand people had. And they didn't understand what these guys or who they were. And Mm -hmm. they made friends with them. You know, it's almost this story, as I recall, is almost like the Spanish conquistadors that come in and and the natives, the Native Americans were kind and welcoming. And here they are. And, you know, they. They think these guys are going to be nice and they're friends. And they, you know, kind of, they weren't. And sometime later, a train was built. And this train went through their territory. And then they had these sticks that blew fire and they killed people. And all they wow. knew was the sticks blew fire, the, they killed people. And then there was this big monster. And the panel is very long. I don't know. I'm a terrible judge of distances, but it's probably like 20 feet long. Yeah. Yeah. And it has the head of the train. You can clearly tell if you know what a train is, you can tell that it's a train, but they didn't know. He said, we didn't know what this thing was. We thought it was a monster. And the head of the train is a big dragon looking monster looking thing and there's smoke coming out of its ears and he said that's the smokestack and the monster's Uh mouth open and then there were little figures that were getting chomped by the monster and falling out of his mouth and then you saw little figures flying behind the monster into the cages and then you saw it you know there were probably five or six train cars that were cages that were the belly of the monster and these people would you know, get chomped and then they'd end up in the belly of this monster. And then the tail was the caboose. And then all around it were guys on horses with these fire sticks shooting, Mm -hmm. you know, shooting and killing and maiming these guys getting chomped. And, and then totems, there were also animal totems near the cars and all around explaining the families and who would have known that that's what those meant? So these mean the various families that were adversely affected by the train? 
Exactly. And the totems, I just remembered that I have very clearly in my mind the monkey one. And there was uh-huh. one that I believe was a baboon as well. But the, the mm-hmm. there were, you know, layers of animals on a totem on a, you know, d- drawn vertically. And that showcased it's this tribe, it's this clan in the tribe. I don't know the vernacular that they use because it's not English. And he was trying to explain that to me. But he said, these are essentially the families that are like chomped and thrown in here. And then there was a chief in there, you know, as most things, the bigger figure is the chief. Were they capturing the native people or were they, was that what was going on or were they being killed? Yeah, both of them. Okay. But they were both capturing and killing them, just slaughtering those people. And so this is a historical account. Yep. So this is a very elaborate law. It's it's real history. It's the actual history as portrayed by the leader of the San at that time in this area, which is near Mapumalanga. I can't even tell you, Polo Kwani, I can't even tell you where exactly it is because I have no idea. We... I, I went up to Mapumalanga, which is about a three, maybe four hour drive from Johannesburg up to Mapumalanga. And then you take off on this road that turns into a gravel road and you get to Polo Kwane. And then I spend the night in a little tiny guest house and I met. And then I, <laughs> I drove out to this village and left uh-huh. the car at his home slash hut. And then we walked for another, you know, four or five hours into the oh bush. my word but that's where it is find that <laughs> wow but this is a very right. well-known uh, panel as you're saying is it a it, it's a paint it's a painted panel correct yes yep okay so I, I didn't mean to interrupt the flow of your thinking but let's continue this this sort of biographical story so after that experience and 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 I I got to and I was toying around this was in 2010 and I was toying around with doing a PhD and kind of just doing a major career shift and I kind of regret that I did didn't do it then but I actually don't regret it because I'll get to that in a minute but got to so with Dr. Smith you know, he'd say, come on, let's get in the archives and let's find a project. Well, so we started digging through the archives of RARI, the Rock Art Research Institute in South Africa. That's just incredible. And found all these old photos from the early 1900s, 1920 of some sites in Congo. Again, I can't even tell you where they are. But they're somewhere deep in the jungle. There, we we do know where they are. It's documented. But no. But since the the I, adventurer, I don't even know what to call him. The gentleman that had taken these photos, no one had been there since from the West, from our part of the world. And he had to like hack his way through the jungle of the Congo, up from the south. All, you know, all I understood was it was if you went to the southern border of the Congo and then hacked your way through the jungle, maybe on a north kind of western trajectory, somewhere eight hours into machete hiking through Tarzan vines, you would get to the Uh huh. And this is all in South Africa, correct? Yes, in Southern Africa. So, okay. 
so Ben said, I have been obsessed with this site. And I also speak French fluently. And I, I've spent, I've just, I've been in the most intrepid places in Africa. I lived in Sierra Leone for many years during the war in South Sudan. So I'm not scared of these places that everybody's scared of. And Ben said, you've got, you can, you can speak in French. I'm like, you really think anybody in like eight hours in the jungle is going to speak French? He said, well, it's better than what we've had. Take this project. And I thought, okay, I'm going to. And then I didn't end up doing my PhD. And so that is still there somewhere in the jungle. And I still, I I am going to go out to the jungle and find this site. And I, I, I'll come back to that as well. But what was fascinating about the photos documented in this site, and they, I don't even know, nobody really knows how this guy found this site because it, they're on rocks, they're petroglyphs, and they're concentric circles. And they're weird. And they're not just your normal spiral. They're just weird. And he said, these are so weird. Look at him. And I'm like, well, I don't know enough to know if they're weird or not. But he said, they're weird. And. <laughs> well, if Ben thinks they're weird, I guess they're weird. That's what there's. And super interesting. Let me, let me, let me stop you right here. We've used up the first segment. But. I want to continue this this bi- biopic of Ann Norman, professional rock art enthusiast and beginning rock art scholar, and to see where this this amazing adventure leads us. See you on the flip flop, gang. Looking to expand your knowledge of X-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on Pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world class resorts Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Welcome back, gang, to episode 84. This is segment two. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we are blessed and proud to have Ann Norman, rock art enthusiast and soon-to-be rock art scholar, on board, doing a bit of a bio epic on her life, early life, and her passion for the study of rock art and archaeology. And continue in your biographical study, and we'll see where this takes us. And I have to say this, I'm blessed and honored to be here. I Okay, so we're in the Congo, in the archives, and in Rari, and that kind of turned me on to this again. And then I... Fast forward, I didn't do a PhD and I didn't study at the vids. And I came back to the United States for a couple of years 
And I was pregnant, actually. This the, I left this factor out. And if we have time to tell the shaman story of when I was pregnant, when I was in South Africa, I was pregnant. And I nobody really knew. I didn't wasn't showing until I was like six and a half, seven months along. And when I went on that big, like five hour hike, I was pregnant. And I, so I did all of this stuff and I mean, just had these fantastic adventures, but I came home, I had my baby and I ended up, you know, fast forward a few years in oil and gas, which is, I'm not an oil and gas person. I'm not an engineer. I studied history and in fact, comparative religions. And that's, that is my, I've always been fascinated with religions, but during this segment of time, you know, again, I, I ended up in oil and gas in Africa. And if you know the map of Africa, well, you know that the oil and gas fields are in like the most politically unstable, dangerous places to go by way of like insecurity. And so Chad and the Niger Delta and, you know, just these terrible places, these, they're not terrible places. They're wonderful places. And, and some of my favorite spots in the whole world, Chad is probably one of my favorite, most happy, like it's so amazing to be there and be with those people because you hear all of these things and then you get to the, you know, you're actually working and, and you're working with the people that run the country. And a lot of times, you know, politics and oil are one and the same. And, you know, you, you find yourself with these leaders of these countries that you've just heard are devils or mean, or they'll, you know, kill you. And they're the kindest people ever. And, you know, now my son is 11 years old and he's been all over to these places and he, it's, it's just so much fun to go and experience this, but Chad is what resurrected my desire to, to begin to study this stuff in earnest. And I'm at this place in my career now that I can actually make a shift and I'm in the process of doing that. And Chad is what did it because there's, you know, again, like the oil fields are out in the middle of nowhere. And then all of a sudden there's this like 25 year thousand, you know, year old petroglyphs of a giraffe. And you're standing there going, someone touched this. Someone made this. It's nobody actually knows how old they are. And, and there's a few things that are really famous in Chad and, and there's a world heritage site but to me, what's interesting is the stuff that nobody ever sees unless you have to go out in these desert fields and, you know, and again, like there's no village, there's nothing. There's like a coordinate on the map and that's where we are. And then here, oh, and by the way, come and look at what I just found. Look at this rock. It has a bunch of pictures on it. And <laughs> It's just mind boggling and it's breathtaking and the history and you start to ask the village, you know, the people that live around there, what do you know about this? And they'll tell you the stories and the histories and they, they can't read, they can't write, you know, in our capacity, the, the, the way that we read and write. But look, these are some of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. And 
the what they remember and what they record in their minds orally and then pass to their children, we should all be taking serious lessons from that. And so these are stories on the rocks. So the rocks commemorate and also communicate stories. They could be incidents, historical episodes, or they can be important elements of their religion and cosmology. Am I correct? Indeed. And I think they're a mix of all of the above. So what did you learn from some of the natives? Were there certain panels or certain images? Right now, I'm thinking of giraffes and I didn't, there's nothing that, there's no like great anecdotal story there, but. Why giraffes? Just because they're, giraffes are like not something that you think of in petroglyphs. Like really, honestly, have you ever seen a giraffe, an ancient giraffe in a rock painted Mm -hmm. somewhere? It's just Mm -hmm. like, whoa, because I think of rock art and I think of petroglyphs and I think of Southwest United States. I think of California. You think of Utah. You think of the native, you know, the Navajo and, and the pipe you think I th- that's where my mind goes to or it goes to the caves in France or it goes to the sand but it doesn't go to giraffes and these no. giraffes are millennia old and hippos there's 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 one panel that I I, I thought that's a hippo and this you know, according to the people around me, they said, oh, this is older than Egypt. Everybody kind of, they tend to date things on Egypt, right? Because Egypt mm-hmm. is such a, such a point in global history. But, and, and you ask, well, what part of Egypt? Oh, I don't know, really old Egypt. And sometimes it's hard to communicate in a language that we both understand, but they'll, draw things or they'll they'll tell you things with pictures because I don't speak a language they do and they don't speak a language I do but pictures speak a language sure so it's just been remarkable one of the I can tell you an anecdotal story about something I learned this was in Sierra Leone it's not relevant to rock art but in the Temni culture this just came up. This is what came to my mind. Everybody jokes about Africa time. Everybody's late forever. It's like if if you say two o'clock, they're going to show up somewhere between two o'clock and six o'clock and they'll that no one is late. And I used to get so frustrated with that. And they said, look, they taught me this. They said many, many tribes are this way. In our language, we don't have a word for time. We don't tell time like you tell it. We don't have o'clock and we don't have the numbers. We have yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And yesterday could be five minutes ago, or it could be 10,000 years ago. It was just, it was, it was behind now. And then you have now, and then you have tomorrow, which could be in five minutes from now or tomorrow or in 10,000 years. And I've asked that question to other tribes throughout Africa. And I asked this in chat and they said, yeah, that's, we have that concept, but now we have time and we have, we have ways to calculate it and we have words for it. But how I relate this to rock art, sometimes when I see concentric circles everywhere, 
I think about that time and I wonder, is this that concept of time in the language that there aren't words for? And you think about these things that you learn from these native groups all over West Africa, you know, the central part of Africa, there's kind of the same types of cultures and there's, you know, more tribal relationship between the, you know, these geographic East Africa and West Africa and Central Africa and South Africa. But you wonder, like, what are those? Maybe they're spiritual. Maybe it's a shaman. Maybe it's just this time is this swirling thing. And I bring up concentric circles as well, because I left this part out that when I saw those concentric circles in the archives in Rari, I, my eyes bulged out of my head. I said, how, how, how? He said, I don't know. I said, there's concentric circles in Utah and in these places that I know, why are they the same? How, how could there be the same kinds of images here in deep, dark, you know, jungle of Africa you find similar images as what you find in the American Southwest and the sand and maybe, okay, you can, you can say maybe there's some continuity and relationship and traveling going on between the boundaries of what we know to be South Africa today up into the Congo. That's, you know, not a, not a far stretch, but how exactly do they get from there to Arizona and they're the same thing. So I thought, okay, what's going on here? There's gotta be some kind of spiritual, religious, mental, I don't know. It's, it's something to this day. That's what drives me, these concentric circles. So when I see these concentric circles all over the place, all over the place, in, in various cultures all over the globe, how explain that? And I know that there's cognitive cognitive neuroscience, and I know Dr. David Whitley has has done you know great work on that. Almost all of you guys that I've read voraciously have written and mentioned that, but I just can't help but think there's way more to this than just our minds are wired that way versus. They're wired that way, but, and there is a big spiritual component to these things. Absolutely. Yep. You're a hundred percent right. There's a spiritual equation to an understanding of symbols. In other words, you can talk about them as abstract symbols. You can talk about them as end optics that one might see vis-a-vis altered states of consciousness or as a visionary experience. But you can also talk about them in a way as being part of the religious language, the um, cosmological communication language. It's one of the units that we use that are, they call them semiotics, they call them, they, they call it indexical images because they're, they're full of meaning. And that meaning is often cross-cultural whether they were reintroduced or whether they were reinvented or whether the mind is just set up, the software of the mind is set up such that 
it, it produces this equivalencies all around the world. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. And I actually want to add one thing. I will find the name of the man that took me, the San gentleman. I'm ashamed to say I, 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 for, it slipped my mind, but something he taught me. And then I, when I went back and talked to Dr. Smith about this, he said, yeah, that's what they, that's the sand. The concentric circles, according to the sand, because there were, there are concentric circles in sand rock art. And I saw some of it with my very eyes. And I asked him about that after we had explored these concentric circles in the Congo. And I was kind of starting to put two and two together. He told me this, and I found this so interesting. He said, for us, when you see a, a spiral like that, a concentric circle, it's a spiritual opening of some sort. It could be physical. It's a it's an opening to the heavens or a spiritual opening. It could be a physical one that we believe this spot is a sacred spot. And right here marks the spot of where the, you know, the other world starts and where this one and this is the place where you can come and go between those. A portal. A portal. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. And he said, the other thing is cracks. Cracks are portals as well. It, and, you know, and that's when, and this is the other thing that is remarkable. When you see cracks and you see snakes coming out of them, in pick the culture, pick the tribe, pick the rock art, pick the time period. There's animals, there's snakes, there's beings, there's anthropomorphs, there's things coming in and out of those cracks. The eland, the spirit of the eland, when they, when the sand people harvest an eland, they, that spirit goes into the crack. And if you start to look at their rock art, you'll see elands drawn. That's their spirit animal. And they're, they're pecked, they're painted. However, they're, they're on that panel, that rock art panel, that eland spirit is going in or it's, it's, it's going in and, and other spirits are coming out and shamans, can explain a bit more to you about that. I didn't have the experience to actually go with a shaman, but I will one day because it's just fascinating to me. But I think that's got to hold true. And this is just con conjecture entirely, but it's not coincidental. And it's also not unique to, to that tribe you know there's things coming in and out of cracks and there's these concentric circles all over the all over the world yeah yeah remember i was telling you about that wonderful woman her name is eve ewing who uh travels she's in her 80s now but yes. traveled on the back of the back of the burrows and back of the mules and into the you know great largest prehistoric paintings in the world yes she began to publish articles on the meaning and the metaphors of cracks. They called her the crack lady. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. And so, again, here's another reason to introduce you to Eve Ewing. Well, Anne, we've gone through segment two, and we're going to move on to segment three. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Welcome back to segment three on Rock Art Podcast, episode 84 quite the journey. It's been exciting so far, and we're going to continue the story and then provide you with the update as to where we are in the journey. So, Anne, 
it's it's up to you to sort of get us at the end of this segment to uh, give us sort of an update as to what you've learned and how you can apply your enthusiasm and knowledge into a particular program or a particular dissertation topic and geography and subject and where you are in that journey. But but let's go back a, a little ways further and pick up the story where you had left off in the last segment, if you could. I would be happy to. There's another subject matter that's closely related, but different, and that is shamanism. Exactly. That has fascinated me since I have understood what it actually is, and I understood it because of Africa, and particularly because of the Zulus. And I've had some remarkable experiences with with a particular Zulu shaman. But when I've met them, I I just, there is just something about them that there's a spiritual power there. And I'm Christian and I'm quite religious in my own religion. And I don't believe that another belief or another religion or another set of just differences from my own negates anything. It doesn't challenge me. It doesn't, you know, rock my faith or my con- confidence in my own beliefs or in my own belief in God. It actually helps it. It's the beauty of the and. It's not and or but. It can be this or that. It's and. And these shamans, there's there's real power with these people. And there's miracles that have happened. And, you know, I, I've experienced this. So I've been fascinated with shamans. And again, it, it started in South Africa and this time not with the sand, but with the Zulu. But as as I learned a little bit more about rock art and then I, you know, again, bring it back to the West and my home of Utah Dr. Smith, one of the, and I, I, I keep going back to him, but one of the things that he found interesting about me was that I was from Utah and that he was interested in a lot in Utah. And also we had magnificent discussions about the continuity of art forms, rock art forms here and there. And what does that mean? And how do you know, how do you figure that out? And so just this really great conversation with him that led into other people that, you know, led into me knowing a little bit more here and there. But as I experienced shamans and started to understand what these people do and sometimes how they do it, I just thought, wow, okay, what is this? Then you come back to America and I, you know, come back to the West and the Southwest and you might not call them shamans. They might be medicine men. They might be something else, but in, in definition, they're, you know, a spiritual leader of sorts that helps usher experiences or knowledge or however it is defined between a a spirit world that we can't always see and a world here. And in my own religion, we call them bishops. We call them priests. We call them their shamans, in my opinion. And I see no difference in it. So I think, okay, if we really believe in God, that God doesn't change. He gives everybody knowledge of him in the, uh, the way and the ability that they are able to 
use that spiritual power and knowledge. And so as I, I've come to think of along those lines and apply this to what I did in my undergrad, which was history and comparative religion. And specifically, I was interested in, and I spent, I've spent a lot of time as well in the Middle East. Um, I lived in Jordan for a while. And, and you know, the Nabataeans were actually one of the reasons why I loved art, rock art as well, because first time I went to Petra and I'm walking through the Sikh, there was Nabataean rock art right at my eye level and you couldn't see it. Like every, all the tourists kept walking by and I, I saw it and I sat and I touched it and I'm, you know, I know I shouldn't, and I'm so sorry. So archeologists don't punch me, but <laughs> I remember thinking the Nabataeans who we don't understand exactly who they are, did this. They wrote this, they drew this. What is this? It's a record of something. And you got, you continue on through that seek. And if your eye is trained to it, you see the most remarkable things in this stone. So the religious element of this is super interesting and Islam history. And I, that's what I studied in my undergrad. Yeah. So, Anne, that was your undergraduate work. And I guess you're trying to now find a way to uh, complete your higher academic career and actually get a PhD. Is that correct? Yes. I am, and I am so excited. And where are you looking to uh, actually enroll? I want to just go into a school that can get me through to the PhD and that the master's is going to jump onto the PhD as opposed to trying to figure out too. And I know I know for certain that the PhD isn't going to be in Utah and there's not, you know, there's not a facility to do it here, but... There is a PhD program and one of my colleagues, who's a board member of the California Rock Art Foundation, recently got a PhD in rock art from the University of California, Berkeley. And her name is Donna Gillette. And I'd be happy to introduce you to her and she could help you introduce you to some of the faculty. And some of those faculty members, I believe, are on the faculty of South Africa as well. I would love to do that because that, you know, again, I would, I would rather just get into a school and go all the way through to the end. And is it semiotics? Do I say that right? You did. Perfect. So thanks to you guys, Chris Webster and Dr. G, I know what semiotics is. And I, that resonated so well, that episode when that, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he had done a I believe PhD that makes semiotics, art history, and was it archaeology? That's correct. And the, and the individual's name who I've done uh, two articles and now a book, and it's it's rather difficult name. He's a East Indian scholar, a Fulbright scholar, and it's Tirtha Mukahabadai. I always yes. make a joke out of it by saying, "Vanna, buy me a vowel." That- <laughs> Well, see, now you understand my struggle with languages. That actually resonated so well with me. And it finally put a word to the ideas that I had had in my head before. Like, there's got to be somewhere that this stuff all mixes together. And, you know, just I that's so all of this and listening then. And then I discovered this podcast, I don't know, sometime last year. And I've devoured the episodes but I found I, I devour whatever I can find 
and and there's a lot. It's it's not like it's difficult to find, but you know, Rari and just the work of the you guys doing rock art and reading and just trying to better understand okay, what what does all this mean? I'm not sure we can ever know exactly what it means, but ethnographies are, are fascinate me as well because the things that we we do know what they mean, it's because there's continuity of history between the people that, that there's continuity of history of the people that have lived there for sometimes millennia. And that goes back to religion and it's all mixed together. And that has, is what has led me to want to pursue graduate work and start to ask these questions and force myself to write about it, to understand it, research it, and then get in the game and get critiqued, debate about it. Here's what I know. What do you know? Here's what I think. What do you think? And begin to to help add to that volume of knowledge and preserve some of that knowledge. Because in my experience, I've been running around some of the most intrepid places in the entire world. The very few people from our part of the world, the West, go to. And so there isn't, there's such a breakdown of there versus here and here versus there. And also even with people in the villages, you know, they, they, when you start to tell them some of the things, you know, they have the exact same reaction that I do when I start to learn their culture and history and religion, they are just shocked. What do you mean? There's people that think like us. We thought we were the only ones. So that that's a great place to sort of stop the story or conclude. And it sounds like uh, you're on the right track and you're sort of at a interesting benchmark, sort of now beginning to discern how to take the passion and turn it into sort of an academic track, find out what platform that would be appropriate to matriculate on and what subject you will be emphasizing. If other people listen to this podcast and are at an interesting benchmark like this, what would you recommend they do, Anne? That's a really good question. And research the schools that have good art history, good archaeology, the, the programs where you would want to be, and then literally pick up the phone and call those professors that seem to have an interest in what it is that you are interested in as well. Because I've had some amazing, I, that's how I met you, Dr. G squared. That's exactly yes. how I met you. And if, yeah, you just, call, just called me up, right? Yeah, I did. You called me I, up. You sent me, sent me an email and we just started talking. And here we are. And that's, that's what you do. You talk to people and don't be afraid to talk to people because those people that think like you, they're, they, they're few and far between. And when you find them, you will know them. And you might talk to five people that write you off and say, whatever, I don't have time for this. But then you find the doctor G squared. Then you find the guy that is talking the same language that is able to articulate the word semiotic into what I've been toying with in my head and didn't understand what it meant. Call them, email them. Don't be afraid to reach out and have discussions with people because you will find your people and they will then start to open paths for you 
And isn't that what it's all about? Back to that concentric circle. It's the path. Amen. That's the path. Thank you, Anne. And thank you. Thank you, Archaeology Podcast Network, for allowing us to uh, have another hour of your time. And we hope we've informed and entertained. And see you in the flip-flop, gang. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.